What's up, everybody? This week on the Dragzine Podcast, we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Daryl Gwynn. Daryl, what's going on? Not much, Brian. How you guys doing? I'm glad to be on one of my uh, first uh, podcasts. I've actually done one or two, but I'm kind of live today. I usually do a lot of interviews, but not, uh, not a podcast, so I'm excited about it. Oh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be totally different. We run things fast and loose around here, and it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun. But yeah, it's uh, it's getting to be that time of year again. I actually, I saw you that we were talking about before. I saw you at Bradenton at the U.S. Street Nationals. I was there doing the live stuff for Flow, and I saw you there, and it popped in my head. I'm like, I got to get him on the show. Maybe I'll go talk to him. But you were looking like you were having so much fun. I was like, you know what? Let's just let him enjoy this, and I will hit him up later. That's exactly what I was doing. I was having a lot of fun. I went over there. I hadn't been to Bradenton, number one, uh, <clears throat> since 93 when Mike Dunn drove my car over there. And I was there on opening day, and I believe that was in 73 with my dad. And we used to race there once a month with my dad in the 70s. So I grew up at Bradenton, and uh, it, it it's – Still Bradenton. Um, they've made some nice changes to it, but uh, it's still got that Bradenton feel. It was great to see a lot of cars there. And I love pro mod racing. And I uh, made some new friends there with the pilot racing guys and uh, um, got to hang out with them for a little bit. Enjoyed talking with them and uh, really enjoy the pro mods. And to your point, I don't know, maybe I had a bigger grin than I there than I do it other places but i was i was having a good time i had no no nothing on my schedule oh yeah you you look like that's why i was like you know what he like literally just looks like he's on vacation and having a good time so just gonna let him have fun we're not gonna talk shop because it it was like you just you, you look like it's different when you're like in racing and you go to an event and you don't have an agenda and you just get right. to be a civilian it's different isn't it Right. Well, the last thing to do if you want to have fun at a drag racing event is, is is bring a race car, you know, that you're not driving. You know, if I was driving, it'd be one thing. But, uh, you know, if you're if you're owning it and you're not driving it and you're at a racetrack, you're usually um, spending money, blowing stuff up. You know, who knows the gamut? But uh, no, to go there with no ties and just watch good old fashioned drag racing was awesome. Yeah, and that, that was actually like my first time going to Bradenton as well. And I love that track. I love the feel of that track. I like the the, the places that feel like they have character, but are like up to date and safe. And you just yeah. you roll you roll into that place, and I'm like, you know, it just it has that feel like it's like a it's like a nice baseball cap. It's like, man, this is I like this. This is nice. Yeah, fits like a glove, and Bradenton does fit like a glove. Like I said, I grew up there. I've covered every square inch of both sides of that place in my heyday you know as a kid and uh then then racing on my own there and I actually remember when I went into pits this last time you know you got to go around the um you got to go around the return road and I mean the 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 catch you know there's no catch fence but you got to go around the the end of the drag strip there and uh I was one of the ones that in my alcohol days went off out there in the cornfields when it was freshly, uh, you know, plowed up and flipped my dragster over. This was when I, right when I first started, it was probably one of the first, I don't know, maybe uh, half a dozen races I went to and 
I rolled the car and my dad said, if you want it fixed, you better get it to Pennsylvania and fix it. And that's how we fixed it. And, and uh, I, I, I went there with my top fuel car there years later. And I'm proud to say this because everybody in racing has made mistakes one time or another. Um, when you can, when you go off the end of a racetrack in a car that runs 210 miles an hour without a parachute, and you come back five years later with a top fuel car that's running 280 miles an hour with no parachute and you get it stopped. Well, that was called experience. And I'd been there before and uh, I knew what to do. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I knew it. The minute I went out in the cornfield, I knew what I did wrong. And, you know, it was just one of those moments that, uh, one of them learning exercises that cost a little bit of money. And that was early in my career. And thankfully it didn't happen late in my career. Yeah. That's uh, going into the, uh, going for an off-roading adventure in a, a race car is never fun. Let alone, I couldn't imagine doing it in a dragster because you're just, you're, it's hard for people to understand that have sat in a dragster or have just sat in a door car, what it's like to be inside that because it changes your perspective on everything. And I could, That'd be, that'd be scary. That that's like my worst fear. Well, they, uh, they used to plow the fields at the end where there were really, really deep ruts. And I can remember the car being upside down in one of those ruts and, uh, you know, it was like a deep rut. I come crawling out of there. And by the time there was some other guys in another car that had just gone around the corner prior to me that come running over the car and they tried trying to get me out of the car. And I'm like, Nope. And I got it. I said, I need to be up, standing up before my mom and dad get down here. Let me just get out of this thing. And, but, um, <clears throat> so that was when I was like 20 years old and I hadn't, we had just gotten a semi. Um, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't learned how to drive the semi yet. And cause everything was happening so fast. And when I told you, my dad said, you better fix this thing. He meant a lot of things when he said that. He meant you better, on the way home, you're going to learn how to drive this semi. So the day I crashed, he said, you're going to, and, and you know, mind you, the roads from Bradenton to Miami at that time, it wasn't, it wasn't I-75, you know, this beautiful highway. We were going across alley, Alligator Alley and 27 and Arcade, up through Arcadia, all these little roads. And I'm learning to drive the semi for the first time the day I crashed. And uh, he said, if that's what, if this is what you want to do, you better figure this out fast. And that's kind of how, you know, I learned a lot that day. I learned how to drive a semi and I learned how to drive, not to drive an alcohol dragster out in the cornfields. It's good to have those kinds of learning experiences and be able to grow from them because <laughs> it's that, that's that's a uh, that's a rough day at the office when you tear up the race car. Then you got to figure out how to drive a semi, which, again, is driving a, a truck and trailer is one thing. But watching people maneuver semis is a whole different ball of wax. Yeah. And I, I like saying this, so I'm going to brag about it now because I can't ever drive one ever again. But. I tell people all the time, all the predicaments that I was in in that semi over the past, over 10 year period from 1980 to 1990, I was in no different than anybody else that was driving a truck for 10 years. You get into some pretty significant predicaments over your 10 year period. 
whether you're downtown Atlanta trying to back in the Coca-Cola building or whether you're on a two-lane road at four in the morning trying to find somebody's driveway to back into with your girlfriend holding a flashlight, you know, at the back of the trailer. Uh, or being broke down on the freeway with your girlfriend at, or, you know, on the highway at three or four in the morning. Uh, been there, done that, all those things. And I never put a scratch on that semi. And that's one thing I'm really proud of. But I know we want to talk about racing. So let's, let's talk about all kinds of fun stuff. Oh, I, I like stories like that because it, it shows that, you know, I, I don't think, you know, there's certain generations don't remember this. I remember this to a certain point growing up watching guys like you when I was growing up watching racing. But back in the day, the drivers just weren't wearing a clean fire suit and talking to a tent full of, you know, VIPs. They were turning wrenches on the car. They were driving the semi. You guys were doing it all. Yeah. Matter of fact, it was me and my girlfriend and, uh, you know, a couple friends from time to time that would share some of the responsibilities with me. But uh, I got to tell you, most of the time it was just me and my girlfriend and one other guy and going down the road. I remember crossing the border my first year going to Montreal in 1981. It was me and Chris Cunningham and his sister, which was my girlfriend at the time. And Chris Cunningham was like 14 or 15. He's the co-crew chief on horses car. Now, you know, I grew up, he grew up, we grew up together. So, um, it's her and, and I, I'm like, I'm nine, I'm 20, she's 19, and uh, Chris is 14 or 15, and we're crossing the Canadian border in a semi. They thought we were up to no good. Uh, they had never never seen anything like that before. <laughs> That's one of those things where the border crossing agent probably went back inside and be like, you, you got to see this. You're exactly. not going to believe this. There's something going on here. Did, did they like give you like the full inspection of the truck, like looking for stuff? Oh, yeah. yeah, they did. And of course, I had a real baby face. So I looked like I was 14 to begin with. You know, I could barely even grow a mustache at the time. So I, I looked even younger than them. So they thought we just stole this thing or something and driving it down the highway. Yeah, see, it, it's road stories like that. You have you have stuff happen on the road. That people just don't believe. That's why I love getting those, like, from my own personal racing experiences, seeing stuff pop up on my Facebook memories. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. You're like, you look back out, out, like, some of the sketchy stuff you do as a racer or on the road, and you're like, man, how do we survive that? Double Yeah, you know, racing is so much different, uh, Brian, than today than it is back then. You know, I, Waterbed Fred and I, we're real good friends, and we talk a couple times a week, you know, and he was one of the iconic crew members on the blue max funny car and you know he he says these people these crew members today they don't even understand says when we when we pull in the racetrack we'd go get a lawnmower and we'd have to cut the grass in our pit area and then we'd have to go then somebody would take a little truck and go buy you know a hundred four by eight sheets of plywood and you'd go you know pay your 20 bucks or whatever to to fred and he'd deliver the plywood after it got back from the, the lumber yard, you know, but that, ha that was very common to, uh, you know, to, to set, you know, we, we, we were, we were like, uh, we were like carnies back then. We had to cut the, cut the grass before we set up the, uh, the circus tents, you know, 
Oh yeah, I, I remember growing up, you know, going to National Trail Raceway for the Spring Nationals and and seeing funny you mentioned National Trail. That's where we used to cut the grass. That was one of them. Oh yeah, that you know, because you know, back in the day, people don't understand that in Central Ohio when they used to have the Spring Nationals, like that was prime time. Like everything is on fire, growing season. Like yes. you turn around, it like the grass has grown three feet. Not to mention that that race always seemed to be like the home of catastrophic flooding at yeah. some point. <laughs> yes, it was. Granted, they, they fixed a lot of the drainage issues, but I remember as a kid, like there'd be a day at the track where there wouldn't be anybody out because there'd be knee deep water back in the sportsman pits back in the corner. Yeah. I, I went there as early as, uh, I don't know, 74 or seven or something like that. But they, again, to your point, it was, that one section, the trailers, I remember seeing the pictures of all the trailer, the water up to past the trailer doors, you know, and that's, you know, now it's all paved and everything else. I mean, we didn't have it as easy. Um, I, I guarantee you, but um, it was a whole different time in our country and a whole different time in racing. And a guy like me with a little bit of common sense and dad who taught me well, um, was able to go out there with a few bucks and compete and, survive and make some money so uh you know it's uh timing is everything and timing was a very big very big critical thing for me um growing up and i have to tell you um i'm no better race car driver than any of these guys are today i just happen to be at a really good time in my life and a perfect timing in the sport where hard work and dedication um, would really get you somewhere in the sport. And that's what me and my family did was dedicated our lives to the sport. And, um, you know, they, all the, every day that I ever spent in that sport was, um, was, was perfect except for one day. And that was the day of my accident, but all the rest of them and all the rest of people I've met along the way that made a lot of friends and, you know, like I said earlier, when, when we were growing up racing, when I was growing racing with my dad in the 70s, you know, times were even rougher. I mean, we were sleeping a bunch of people in a room and sometimes sleeping in the back of the truck and racing three or four nights a week and uh, driving all night, coming home and having to go to school the next day. And, you know, my dad would come home and have a bunch of cash in his pocket from winning over the weekend and we'd go back the next weekend and do it all over again. But it reminded me, you know, I, I looked at some of my friends at the time when I was trying to figure out what I was going to be when I was growing up. And my friends are going off to college and I can't get my head out of this engine and out of this racing thing. I loved it so much. And, you know, my, like I said, my friends are all figuring out what colleges they're going to go to. And I'm thinking, man, we're just a bunch of carnies, man. I saw it. We're just glor we're, we weren't even glorified at that time, you know. Now I've, I'll put NHRA and NASCAR and some of these. Other, it's, they're they're like Chrome carnies now because we're, they're all basically doing the same thing. It's just a little more polished, upscale gypsies. That's right. Now, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. Now I do have to thank here one of our our sponsors for this episode, Performance Distributors. The company that allows you to feel the difference, not just in spark. What does that mean exactly? Well, their ignition systems are designed and manufactured under the most stringent of guidelines. In fact, 
owner Steve Davis told us their systems are designed as if they're running them in their own vehicles because they are. One of their products you may already know of them for is their line of DUI distributors, the first and one of the best HEI distributors on the market. Their machine calibrated timing curves provide instant throttle spots and eliminate engine damaging detonation. For those of you with late model vehicles, their Sultans of Spark ignition coils are based on DUI technology so they can accommodate a wider plug gap firing more voltage. Make sure you check out performancedistributors.com. Gotta have them sponsors, man. Oh yeah, you got got gotta you know gotta have the sponsors, and you know it, it's one of those things where we not only advertise it, we use it because I've actually got some of their Sultans of Start Spark stuff. We're gonna put on my uh, my turbo streetcar deal, so it's it's gonna be interesting once I start doing that because that'll be able to tell stories about using their product on my own car. It's cool. Really nice stuff. Well, I got my speaking of sponsors, I got my Jeg sweatshirt on, and uh, I've known the Jegs family since. Uh, Gosh, since they were since those kids were born, I remember Jeggy when he was in diapers. Oh wow! Yes, known the Jeggs family for a long, long time. My dad used to race against Jeggs Senior. What What's crazy is that you know they're based here in Central Ohio. We drove past their headquarters, you know, a couple of days ago, and they have the big building where you know that's like the headquarters and the warehouse. And then my wife was like, "Well, what's that building there?" I'm like. Oh, that's the fun place. That's the race shop right there. Yeah, exactly. I'm like that. that that's the that's the uh, that, that's where all the real fun stuff. That's is. the toys. That's the toy. That's the candy store. Yeah, absolutely. I was in there not about a year or so ago, and there's a lot of cool stuff in there. Yeah, and that, see, now I'm jealous because I want to go in there just to like check out. Like uh, Scott Woodruff will always post pictures of like some of the different projects and the old yes. stuff they're, they're they're they have in there. And to me, I love nostalgia racing related stuff. So I'll go in there and like, I'll walk past all the new stuff and I'll want to go look at all the old cars. Amen. Yeah. You and me both. Cause it rings such a bell to me. Cause I, I remember it. I mean, it was when my dad raced against him and some of the old car haulers, he, he, they're restoring and stuff in there. All um, the old ramp trucks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Good stuff. You, you, you All right. Now this is something you'll probably appreciate. You probably remember when enclosed trailers first started becoming like if you had one of those, that was like, that was the thing. Now go to a national event and see how many open trailers you can find. I know it's. Um, I like it when I go to some stock car races and I still see some guys on open trailers um, that are doing well. They go there and they can still kick ass with an open trailer. And uh, that means that means a lot. Um, you don't have to have an enclosed trailer. You just got to have your act together. You got to. The racetrack is not the place to work on your car. You got to have your car figured out before you get to the racetrack, so you can make minor adjustments when you get there. And that was a that was something that my dad always instilled in me. <clears throat> the people that I surrounded myself with, Ken Vinny, Dale Armstrong, all these people, in early in my career that were just they were workaholics and uh, garlets and I saw how hard they worked and I saw the outcome and it was clear that not only they were smarter, but they were out working everybody. And that's a, that's a really tough combination to be because oh, you can outsmart somebody, but you can't always outwork them. And when you can outsmart them and outwork them, Hey, that's where the perfect combination comes in. And I like what I see out there in some of these teams right now, the culture, of some of these teams. And when I say culture, culture to me 
and racing means more than anything because I like what I see in the Torrance racing culture. They race hard. They play hard. They're really serious, um, but they play hard. They know how to have fun. Um, I, I really, I really enjoy going to the races and seeing certain teams culture. I like elites culture with Eric Enders and the, you know, the, it's a no BS culture. Everybody knows where they stand. Um, and you know, in, in racing, you've got to have a good understanding of each other and you know, you, there's no time for drama at a racetrack is what I'm trying to say in so many words. And, uh, they do a good job of making that not happen. I am of the mindset myself and I've, you know, crewed on cars where when we showed up to the track, it was ready to unload out of the box and we can make a hit, just throw a splash of gas in it, maybe charge the battery. That was it. I cringe when I see people show up to the track and the first thing you do is start tearing a car apart. I'm like, Oh, Oh, son, you're in for a long weekend. Yeah, what, what what have you been doing all week, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, it, 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 you're just, you're setting yourself up to have problems on so many levels because, and you could probably attest to this too, that, you know, when you are a, not a huge high buck operation, that you have to be more prepared than everybody else there, period, end of discussion. And that was pretty much, me most of the time. I mean, we weren't the most highest funded team. We weren't, I mean, yeah, we had some good sponsors in Coors and Budweiser and all that, but in eighties, you know, in the early eighties, we didn't have sponsors. We were self-sponsored and um, ran our own team, ran our own budget and made it, made, you know, had a lot of support from a lot of different people. But again, I had a lot of mentors, uh, mentors like, again, like Dale and Ray Alley and, Garlitz, my dad, so, so many people to mention. Like, I almost feel like I let half of these people down because if you've got Garlitz, Armstrong, Ken Benny, Jerry Gwen, and some others as your mentor, you should be winning more races than you want, the way I look at it. Because those guys, they knew how to win races. And uh, growing, up, growing up around them, they, they taught me how. And I, I guess I learned a little bit from them, but man, it sure seemed like as good as they were, um, I had the ability to win a whole bunch more. Let's put it that way. Do you think that, actually, I got a better question that, you know, based on what you said there, what's one of the biggest teachable moments you can remember from any of those guys when it comes to drag racing, you know, any of those mentors, anybody where there was something like that sticks out in your mind. That's just like a moment where you like a, a light bulb moment, if you will. Um, you know, <clears throat> my dad was a mixture of like a little bit of Ken Vinny and a little bit of Dale Armstrong in certain areas but Ken was a very, very well-prepared. All of Ken's cars were very, very well-prepared. And Armstrong, rest in peace, one of my greatest friends, he, <clears throat> he would, um, he just, he knew 
he knew what mattered and what didn't. So him and I would always, he would always leave the shop first and go, you're wasting your time doing that. Like if I'm trying to do something really, really meticulous, he would say, you're wasting your time because he wouldn't waste his time doing that because it wouldn't mean a lot in the out, in the whole outcome of things. He was that good of a racer that he knew exactly what mattered and what didn't matter. And I didn't. So I tried to do everything mechanically perfect until I figured out what I could get away with, so to speak. But you don't want to get away with anything when you're putting it together mechanically. Um, but I, I learned uh, from my dad, from Ken Vinny and Armstrong, one thing was you're not going to get down. the if You're not going to win races if you don't get down the racetrack. And the object is we're all dealing with the same racetrack on a given day. You got to figure out how to get down it. And I think one of the things that separated Daryl Gwynn apart from a lot of the other top fuel drivers at the time was I wasn't programmed to do anything in that car because I'd never driven one. And when I got in one and we were having a problem tuning it, or let's say we were on a certain day making more power than everybody else and we didn't know how to get it down through there, he said, well, why don't we, why don't we put all the power to it and hold the brake? And sure enough, we started just loading the clutch up and loading the motor up and I would drive it with the brake. And I'm proud to say that probably three quarters of the wallies that I won in top fuel were all holding the brake. Uh, most of the runs and elimination and probably most of them in qualifying in 86. I would say in 86, all the races, 87, all the races, 88, all the races, uh, probably not in 89 or 90, but because uh, we had a uh, high gear only at that point, and we didn't need to hold the brake as much as we did when we had a transmission in it. But uh, the tra the uh, the brake, when other guys couldn't get off the starting line or couldn't get through the middle of the track, um, that was kind of my thing. I, I told the story the other day that we showed up in Memphis in 1988 and the track was white. It was brand new concrete facility. facility. It wasn't even a, it wasn't a rent, you know, they had like the customer races the day before. There wasn't even a rental car mark down that damn thing. And I said, oh boy, I can't wait to get out there. And uh, sure enough, we uh, we were the only car to get down the track every run, and we lowered the lowered the number one qualifier every run we made, and we won the race. And uh, uh, we shined on really good tracks because we had a lot of power, and we shined on really bad tracks because I could get it down through there. In the, the some of the intermediates. You know, in the middle of the summer and some of these, some of the places I, I tended to struggle out a little bit, but, um, you know, to one of my, one of the greatest stories in, in my, I don't know why I get such a kick out of it, but I, uh, if you ever look back at the 86 world finals, you'll see me pull on the start line with Joe Amato and that's back when we used to do a dry burnout, Brian, before the run. And the reason for the dry burnout wasn't because it was a cool thing to do. Um, 
the reason for the dry burnout was we had so much power that in order to get it off the starting line, you had to get the clutch hot enough during the dry burnout so that it'll go down the track on the run. So if it really smoked the tires hard on the dry burnout, which a lot of times it did, that meant you had to hold the brake for the run. And the, the finals of 86, um, we'd already won a bunch of races that year holding the brake. And Bernstein just won in funny car and Armstrong stayed back to watch top fuel. And I do the dry burnout <clears throat> and a little bit of smoke comes off the tire on the dry burnout. I back up from the burnout. And of course, I already know what everybody's going to tell me. My dad, Chris Cunningham. And then of course, here comes Dale. Right at the last minute, he kneels down at the car next to the driver's compartment and he takes his two fingers and he puts them together like, man, just hold the brake just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit just to get. And I knew at the time that, so 86 was when lockup clutches came out and we didn't have one yet, but Amato had one. So we had been kind of running ahead of Amato most of the year. ET wise, well, Motto come world finals, he caught up. They were running, we were running neck and neck at the world finals. And because he had a lockup clutch. And I figured, Daryl, if you hold the brake one little bit, Amato's going to beat you because our, you know, every time we ever raced to begin with, the winner was decided by a foot. So I just knew that he was going to be there. Tim Richards didn't screw up. We didn't want to screw up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna do whatever I got to do to make sure I'm at the finish line, right next to him, and try and get a shot to win. And I shook my head to Dale and everybody, and I said, "No, I'm not holding the brake because the rule of thumb, Brian, was if it smoked the tires just a little bit on the dry burnout, it would be just fine for the run, and you wouldn't have to hold the brake." There would be just enough heat out of the clutch. So this is this is high tech. This is high tech shit here, Brian. So when when you this is like really high tech. When you do your dry burnout and you got to measure the smoke coming off of it visually to figure out if it's going to make it for the run, right? So uh, I didn't hold the brake, and we ended up winning the race, and we won by a foot. Cause I knew if I held the brake, you know, it was one of the one runs I didn't hold the brake in 86 to win the race, but uh, holding the brake won me a ton of races back in the day. And it was something that I'm not going to say came naturally to me, but I, like I said, I hadn't been driving one for 20 years, like, you know, Shirley and Coletta and Dick LaHaye and Bradley and all these guys, you know, and Garlitz and everybody. So I just got in and they said, you know, why don't you hold the brake? I'm like, Oh, okay. Sounds like fun, you know, whatever we got to do to get her down through there. And it ended up being kind of a, uh, you know, a very, very uh, comfort zone for me because I, I felt very comfortable doing it, especially when there was the results there was. I love that story. And my favorite part is the technical measurement of smoke determines what you're going to do with a 10,000 horsepower vehicle. To exactly. me, that, that, that sums up that era of drag racing perfectly yeah. where it was like well we, we kind of think we might know what it's going to do hold my beer watch this yes it's called a swag a sophisticated wild ass guess that's what we used to call it 
every once in a while when Benny would try something, this would be later on in my career when Benny would try something in the uh, quarters extra gold car or whatever, so make a really big, big change. You know, Ken ran fuel. So he, he was pretty up on all that stuff. The guy was, you know, one of the sharpest guys in the business, but there again, you're working with nitro, you know, so one knows, no one knows what can happen. So, you know, there was always those times when I, I always felt really good and safe and everything in the car, but you know, some of those times with Benny would, right before you go to start the car after he just changed everything in the car back at the pitch, you know, just all kinds of stuff to figure out what's wrong with this thing. And he goes, right before it starts, he says, in his sarcastic voice, he says, Hey, he says, uh, I'd much rather be in there than out here when this thing goes to start, you know? So that's not very comforting when you hear that your crew chief tell you, Hey, uh, we don't really want to be standing next to the same we started, but we're going to let you drive it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that's not a vote of confidence. No, not really. But those were just uh, joking times. But, uh, again, we all had a great time. If you if you ask any of them guys, none of us would trade it again. Uh, we, we had a very uh, – speaking of the culture, uh, we had a Torrance-like culture. We uh, had a bunch of young guys that uh, worked really, really hard, that were really, really smart. They were uh, all the guys on my race team. A lot of people didn't know this, but <clears throat> you know, my my me and my dad, we're no dummies. When we figured out that when we needed some people to go help us on the race car, some of our best friends were Mike Cunningham, Chris Cunningham. And my dad grew up with Mike. My dad, Mike Cunningham, was was uh, at the World Finals in 1969 when my dad won, working on my dad's car. So they've been together forever. So they're all working for the airlines now, and they want to go racing. So we've got we're we're looking for people that have common sense to work on a race car. So we said, oh man, this sounds like a good plan. These guys work on airplanes. That's that's pretty important. Why don't we? Why don't we get these guys to help us on the car? Plus, they fly in for free. So we had a we had one heck of a deal with those guys because all you had to do is show them and they could do it because they're they were airline mechanics. They weren't they weren't baggage handlers. They were airline mechanics. They were young kids that were going to school to be airline mechanics, and they ultimately became them. And they, so they they not only knew how to do stuff, they knew how to build stuff and fix stuff and. It was it was great for all. It was kind of an internship for them, and a you know, and 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 Chris Cunningham's out there still doing it now and making a great living at it. So, you know, uh, it was great for us and great for them and um, great times and you know, period. Now I've got to thank our other sponsor before we kick this interview into high gear, and that's Procharger. For twenty five years, Procharger has been the industry leading aftermarket supercharger manufacturer by designing, engineering, and building the most powerful, reliable, and advanced centrifugal superchargers on the market. No matter if you're looking for a 3,500 horsepower record-setting pro mod or a DIY system for your street car, truck, or motorcycle, Procharger has the perfect supercharger system for you. For more information about all the amazing ways you can bolt on up to 100% more horsepower, check out Procharger.com. Now, Kicking things into high gear, what I mean by that is, first off, you you drove a fuel altered at one point, correct? 
it was an alcohol altered and that's what I got my license in. Um, it wasn't nitro, it was alcohol, but still it, equally reg terrifying. Regardless, um, I can tell you some really good stories about that altered. The first being, um, that's the car I proceeded to tell my dad that I wanted to get my license in. And I figured that would be best because I wanted to shake my dad's hand before I made a run. And it'd be easier to do in an altered versus a funny car. And I wanted to be him to be able to communicate with me kind of at the starting line, even though the car was running, I couldn't hear him. At least I could maybe read his lips or whatever, but he could put his hands on whatever. And I'll never forget in Miami, Hollywood, in 1979 or 80, the year I graduated high school, I graduated in 79. I think it was the end of 79. I went out and said that uh, I told my parents I wanted to get my license. And so we made a trip out to our local racetrack and on a Saturday night. And uh, I'll never forget the first time I hit the throttle. I said, I don't know if this is going to be something I want to do. Because the minute I, the minute I hit the throttle on that AA altered, it did not want to do anything, but it wanted to do everything but go straight. And I like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So we came back and I said, look, this, we got to do something different. And my dad sat down, my dad and I sat down and talked about it. And I said, dad, I'm not going to learn anything about how to drive this car if the car doesn't go out down the racetrack, I said, how do these people learn how to race and make all these runs? If they don't go through the mo go through the motions of what you're supposed to do on every run, but at a slower pace. So I said, here's, why don't we do this? And my dad took a two by four, literally at this more scientific shit here. Now I want you to listen really good. This is high, high tech stuff put a two by four underneath the throttle pedal so that I could go up there and I could run 120 miles an hour before I ran 190 miles an hour. And I just would go through all the gears, do everything I was supposed to, just the car would only run X fast. And it worked great. Went down through there and shifted the gears. I could concentrate on what I was doing. And then I said, you know, let's give it a little more. So we take a little more of the wood off or whatever. We put a smaller piece of something in there and duct tape it to around the throttle stop. And that's how I got my license is because that car, the minute you stepped on all that power at a track that wouldn't really necessarily, I mean, you'd have to be at a national event for that thing to go straight most of the time, you know, because in Florida, we didn't have any, you know, concrete facilities or any really, really good tracks to speak of other than Gainesville. And that was questionable at times back then, you know? So it was a very interesting way to get your license. But to me, I thought that I thought it was a very uh, cool way because I got to learn everything, every run, instead of going out there and going, you know, you hit the throttle and you go, Oh crap. You know, he says, shut it off at a hundred foot. And you only get to go for a hundred foot. Then you get, you know, it's a whole different way of learning. And I think it really, really helped me because I really wanted to go through the motions of doing everything. Plus, it made the car where it would go down the track every time. So then once I got familiar with the car, 
then we take the throttle, you know, the throttle stop out of it, of course. And we start going to these points meets in Florida. And I remember going to speed Orlando speed world and oh my gosh, the track was back. You know, this was back in, this was in 80, I think it was a Turkey trots or something. And it was just horrible asphalt and nobody's getting down the racetrack. And I think I ran, I mean, I was competitive at the time, but it ran like 702 and it was from guardrail to center line, but it's felt like I ran 402 um, because you're driving the hell out of it. And not too many weeks later, went to English town. Well, no, it was, it was probably months later went to English town for the summer nationals unloaded and ran 674 204 as the fastest the car ever ran. And I got out of the car at the other end and just, you know, putting my stuff away and just doing my thing. And my, my parents come down there and my dad's honking the horn and everything. I'm like, what's the big deal, you know? But my point is a nice, perfectly smooth run didn't feel like I was going very fast at all. It was those ones where you're driving the heck out of it, you know, and pulling levers and driving it, you feel like you're going twice as fast. And uh, so object of the game is to obviously try and get it down, go down through there straight every time. And uh, uh, that's the hard part in racing anyways. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Especially yeah. one of those altered cars. Cause those, uh, that's, uh, when I saw the picture, Mike, I thought fuel altered. I'm like, dude, this guy's, he drove a nitro fuel alter. That's like, to me, that's like almost like a quarter step below a nitro Harley, just yeah. barely. Because yeah, well, it it would be um, nitro Harley being one, uh, but yeah, I I I wasn't I was I was dumb, but I wasn't that dumb. No way was I ever going to get in the fuel alter. No way. Oh. It, I was at shooting a good guy's nostalgia show a few years ago and like <laughs> your life changes when you see one of those old, like not one of these newer ones. It's like a funny car with an altered body and a big wing. Right. I'm talking like one of the ones it's like the size of like a bracket altered with right. the motors motors way high in the air, high center of gravity, little tiny front tires on it. And, Hardly any wing on it. Yeah, those guys were, yeah, Leon Fitzgerald and Willie Borsch and all those guys and Nanook, all they view, those, all those people were nuts back in the day. They, they were, they were insane. Uh, yeah. That would not be, would not be me. Yeah. It's one of those things you look at it, it's like, you know, I'm just, I'm going to enjoy watching you enjoy yourself for my own yeah, personal amen. safety. Now, we we're talking, you know, you mentioned earlier that you, uh, you're a fan of pro mod racing. And that's another one of those things where, you know, like a lot of times when I see a run, when I'm, you know, doing media stuff at the side of the track, if I see a run that looks uneventful, I'll immediately think, oh, this guy's on a pass. It's usually when they're driving all over the place that it's not as fast. Pro mods are usually the opposite case because those cars, if they look slow, or if they look like they're, they're under control, they're not going very fast especially NHRA quarter mile racing, because those things are, that's a different level of crazy when you jump behind the wheel. That is a different level of crazy. But the re I think the reason why I like them pro mods is the simple fact that the same reason why everybody else does. It's uh, I mean, I have a little 
you know, I've got a, I've got a strong affinity for alcohol racing and which I love the alcohol funny cars and the alcohol dragsters. I still go up and watch those from time to time at the races, but um, you see that big old motor in the front of that car and it uh, defies all odds because I've never drove a car that had suspension in it. And if you look at one of those cars with the motor hanging almost over the front end, if you did that with a car that didn't have any suspension, that car looks like it would never hook up, you know, with that motor way out there. Just the, just the pure uh, layout of that car is not, doesn't fit my brain as far as to be a, the proper kind of uh, race car. So when you take those motors way that much, put them all the way on the nose and you run that fast with that car, uh, and those cars leave that hard and transfer all that weight and those tires still hook and so on and so on. And so it just blows me away what they can do with them. And I love the fact that they rev them up and go. Um, I, I just, uh, they're, they're, they're really impressive to me these days. And then you mix in the fact that you get the guys that take those exact same engines and run them in cars on a 315 radial and go faster than what they do on slicks. It's, it's very hard to wrap your mind around doing that. Yeah. And, and they run them completely different because one hooks a tire, one doesn't. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm beginning to learn all that. What the, you know, what the, uh, what all these different classes are and how they kind of run these cars, because, you know, it's, there is a science to running every kind of every one of these cars, you know, some of them need to hook, some need to spin most people don't realize that a top fuel and funny car spin a big portion of the way down their track. It's just a controlled wheel spin, you know? Um, hell, I remember when we were growing up all the way up until the eighties, mid eighties, you would, if you wanted your car to get down the racetrack, you would take let you would take more air out of the tires to make the tire more soft because that would give you more of a contact patch. Well, today, you know, with today's tires, the more air you put in it, the more it keeps it flat at the bottom. So you want to hook more, you put more air in it, which doesn't make sense if you're comparing it to a bicycle or a car, you know, anything else, because it's basically the opposite of, of uh, you know, thinking otherwise. I was at Orlando doing the live feed stuff for Flow for the World Door Slammer Nationals, and they had people on the crew that had never been to a drag race before. And once they started like asking questions and you know, like, they're like, I hope I'm asking any dumb questions. Like there's no such thing as a dumb question. The only dumb thing is not asking a question. So I'm explaining everything to them. And by the second day, they are just glued to this, like watching what's happening. Like, Oh, this is going to be a good run. I'm like, Oh, we've created more addicts. Yes. This is what we need yeah, to do. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when you when you figure out that all these things have to work in conjunction with each other, um, that we're not just out there, you know, this isn't a, kind of a, a plug and play type of thing. You know, all these things need to work uh, with each other instead of against each other. And you've got to have a guy that you got to have a guy, guy with common sense that can drive it. And you got a guy that's got to have common sense that can tune it and make the right decisions. And those are the keys. And those are the people that will continue to 
be more competitive in drag racing than others. You know, speaking of, and I'm not bringing his name up for any reason, but I noticed Stevie Jackson's not doing well this year. Don't, don't you worry. He's, there's some very smart people over there. They'll get that thing figured out. Don't you worry. That's just like back in the days, you know, old Manzo used to have a hard time some of the times in qualifying and then he'd qualify horrible and we're barely qualifying each poor guy and that's got to race him first round knows it's the minute he gets it figured out, it's over, you know? And uh, I feel that way about Stevie Jackson. He's yeah. a badass. Yeah. yeah. That is one of those guys that if you see him at any point on the ladder, you can't go, Oh, this is, you know, he barely made the field. No, they, they are, it's a very, scientific operation that they're trying to figure this out. They're trying to cite it in and they're trying crazy stuff. And him and Shuler and Stockland are like just doing wild stuff. And they're going to go, well, we tried, you know, they're trying to apply stuff. They learned three races ago and apply to this stuff now. And all of a sudden you're probably going to be the unlucky recipient of the beating that comes from them finally figuring it out. The beating, exactly. And it's coming. It's coming. Don't worry. But uh, I know this isn't a Stevie Jackson hour, but I think that guy's uh, – I think he's a badass. And uh, I like – speaking of pro mod racing, I, I like what he stands for, and I think he's great for the sport of drag racing. Well, it's funny you mentioned Stevie and just pro mod in general because that class, I think – is going to mark my words this year is going to overshadow with the personalities, all the nitro classes put together because you have Stevie, you have Lyle Barnett in there, J.R. Gray, and a few other guys in there that have come from like that outlaw world and they don't be holding themselves to sponsors in the same way. And they, they do things differently. J.R. Gray bet a dude at the Orlando at the world street nationals, they're pairing them up. They're like, Oh, you know, what do you want to bet? And the one guy threw out this crazy, there was a the Canadian guy, Justin Bond was like, Oh, you know, 2000 to win. And JR is like, how about this for every cone I beat you past, you got to pay me like $300. Well, you do the math real quick. It's like a full quarter mile race. That's more than what the other dude wanted to put up. And he didn't think the math. He goes, Oh yeah, deal. He's like that right there is that, that hustler grudge racing mentality that the corporate NHRA is not ready for. They're not, they're not ready for that because that they're not programmed like that. And these guys are, and that's good because I'm not going to say it's boring because driving a 10,000 horsepower funny car dragster is not boring, but you've got to have personalities in a sport. John force is getting of age. He's not out there talking as much smack as he used to when he was younger. And, uh, you know, you got a guy like Stevie Jackson and some of these other guys coming up from the, you know, from the, the grudge racing wars. And that's what they, you know, they, 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 they do best is they know how to talk the talk. Oh, it's you, you get, and they make it entertaining. Oh, you get a couple of these guys at the top end on a mic after something crazy happened on a run. Like, you know, I've known Lyle Barnett for a while. He's been on, you know, our $10,000 drag shootout. He is a very uh, driven individual that is not a wallflower. And when he's on the chip and he's speaking from his heart, 
there was a lot of times when we were filming him, we were like, well, we're just going to, we don't have to lead this horse to water. He's going to run straight into it. You know, you just right. you let him go. Yeah. Just, just follow a guy like that. And you're going to get enough content to just you, to put a show together. Cause that guy's on fire. You know, he's, he's doing what it takes and he's a good example for others. When, when I was at the U S street nationals, when we were talking flow racing, you know, they're still new to the drag racing world that, you know, we're talking with our producers about some ideas and they did something for like Indiana sprint week where they would follow like five USAC drivers for the whole week. It was an amazing show. Like I'll go back to watch all their. I'm very familiar with it. I'm very familiar with flow racing and I'm very familiar with uh, all the, what they do during USAC week. I watched it uh, last year when Kyle Larson cleaned their clock um, that week. And um, I've been, I'm a big fan. I watched dirt racing, uh, just about every night, um, I get some of the live feeds from all across the country. So I'm one of those junkies. I got three or four TVs in my room and uh, every one of them's got racing on. And uh, heck, that's all I know. I canceled my subscription to cable because of everything that is at our, like as drag racing fans, there is so much that's available content wise at your fingertips right now. Like I remember growing up, it was like Steve Evans, NHRA today. Like we were glued to the TV when that came on the Nashville network or ESPN and RPM tonight, you know, and it was, you know, a few days behind now with, you know, even shows like this and what competition plus has and what West Buck does, there is so much racing content you can get out there across all forms of racing, it's insane. You're we're spoiled. It, re- it really is. It's it's good. Um, you know, I don't see any negative to uh, to that side of social media. You know, it's some of the other stuff and other politics that we won't talk about. But uh, you know, social media has has its advantage, and that's definitely uh, one of them. And the internet has its advantages. Well, uh, what I was getting with the flow racing deals when they were like, I I was talking with them and I said, listen, what you guys did at Sprint Week was awesome. I was like, you have a target rich environment here in these drag racing pits. I'm like, just the pro mod class. There's 40 cars here. There's 40 people you could talk to that have personalities. There is no same person here doing this. So at lights out i know that they did at least one or two of those docu-series there that is going to be amazing i know they did some at some of the no prep stuff at bounty hunters so they're bringing that to the drag racing world with their storytelling abilities that i think that they're realizing you know wow the dirt racing has some stuff but these guys are on par with it at a little bit of a different level yeah you know we always grew up you know with the mindset that as loud as the cars were I remember back in the day hearing that Wally Parks always said the cars were the stars. The people are the stars. I mean, you know, we can, we can teach anybody to drive them. You just got to have a personality and, you know, it's the difference of, of being a Ron Caps or a John Force versus somebody else. You know, it's uh, you, you, they, they bring a lot to the sport. You know, what, what's funny is uh, someone I got to inadvertently have a conversation with growing up was Bob Glidden growing up. My dad knew the game, the hardest working guys in the sport. 
that my dad grew up with the games family that raced IHRA and ADRL and they were in Columbus for an ADRL race. And literally Bob Glidden walks around the corner to talk to Brian game. And like, he was there just, you know, to, to hang out, maybe talk to some customers, but just like hearing him talk and like seeing his mannerisms and like the way that he was smoking his cigarette was like, you know, the way old, old street racers used to do. It's like, yes. I'm like this right here. Like that, that sticks out in my mind. Cause he's just sitting there laughing and joking. He's like, you guys are going to have to really turn this thing up. If you, you these guys are going to beat you down. Just like his whole conversation. I'm like, this is the stuff you don't get to see on TV. Yeah. Bob Glennon and I, fortunately were good friends. I was friends, good friends with his whole family and, uh, I don't know if you remember in the early 80s when I had my first semi, I had a, I had a basketball hoop at the back door of my trailer. It was a basketball hoop and it folded up on the back door. And I wasn't very good friends with Bob Glidden prior to having the basketball hoop on my trailer. After I he found out that I had a basketball hoop, him and the boys would come over at the end of the days at the national events and want to shoot up some hoops and they would number one I I just did it as a stress reliever those guys were they were serious Indiana tall they were all tall all basketball family they were big time and when when you said that cigarette Bob would have that cigarette in his mouth and he'd throw it over on the ground and he would smoke them boys and me playing basketball and uh I've got, I've got a lot of great Bob Glidden stories, but one that means the most to me was my last year, I was getting out of the sport, was 03. I was at the world finals. It was gonna be my last race as an owner. And it's about nine o'clock at night and I'm in my bus. It's Saturday night. I think he was there helping Larry Morgan or something. And there's a knock at the door and it's Bob Glidden, and he heard that I was at the racetrack because I hadn't seen, you know, this is, remember he disappeared for a little while, didn't come to the track, and then he came back, helped Larry and a couple other guys. Well, I hadn't seen him in, you know, 10, five or 10 years or whatever, and here's a knock on the door, and here's Bob Glidden. He is covered with dirt from head to toe, filthy, and he comes in the bus, and he lays on the floor, and he laid on the floor for an hour just catching up with me on what's going on. Here's Bob Glidden laying on the floor of my bus. And it's just the coolest thing, me and my buddies talking to Bob Glidden. He'd just come over just to, just because he knew I was there and and he was there and we weren't going to probably be in the same place too many times again. And he came over to see me and uh, that meant a lot. And I, uh, I still stay in contact with the boys a little bit here and there. Uh, but a great racing family. I grew up around them at the sport. Hardest working guy, period, at the racetrack. The whole family. They were always working hard. And, boy, it showed. Well, Daryl, time here on the show is coming to an end. And I like to uh, throw it to my guests to allow them to, uh, you know, the, where they they can, you know, channel their their their, their John Force spirit of thanking all their sponsors and everything else and where people can find them at. So basically, I, I like to just turn it over to you, the guest, so you can tell people, 
you know, what you got going on, where they can learn about what you got going on, the whole deal. So, uh, Daryl, the, the floor is yours, my friend. Yeah, I appreciate it, Brian. Well, I'm um, I'm obviously retired from racing. I will be at the uh, uh, the PDRA race in Dunbenson. I'll be in Commerce for the what I'm hearing is the last uh, national event that Commerce ever will ever have, um, unfortunately and sadly. Um, and I'm going to go to Charlotte. Um, I. I like going on the road a little bit during the summertime, getting away from the house for a little bit and uh, going to see some like-minded people on the road, uh, my friends and people I grew up with, you know, uh, racers. And, uh, but, uh, you know, when I'm home, uh, you can visit uh, DarylGwen.com uh, for any like memorabilia and stuff. I'll have all my trailer and stuff at those events. Um, I'm also working uh, full-time for the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis. I have the Daryl Gwynn chapter of the Bonacani Fund there, and we do a next, last year and this year, we're doing what they call a wheelchair challenge. I don't know if you saw last year where uh, quite a few of the drivers did it. Um, you know, Steve Torrance and Antron Brown and, uh, oh gosh. Um, so Coughlin did it, right? Yeah, Jeggy did it. Um, a lot of other, uh, influential people did it. We were very successful in doing it. We are going to do it again this year. I've gotten commitments from people like Chad Green in ProMod, who was, uh, was in a really bad accident several years ago, remember, and broke his, uh, broke his back, but was fortunate enough to be able to come back. And, um, I think he'll do a very good job of, getting that message out. And also um, anybody else that may want to do it, it's a donation of 10,000. You share ex your experience online, you pass it on to the next guy and so on and so forth. It's kind of like a chain and it keeps going. And we were able to raise a lot of money with it last year. You can read more about that on our Miami Projects website. Um, but that's what I'm doing on the road. I'm going to be signing some of those new people up and going to the races and seeing some good people and uh, having some good times and uh, while we still can. For sure, Daryl. Thank you for coming on. Of course, I've got to thank our sponsors, AFR, Liquid Wallet, Performance Distributors, and Pro Charger for helping the podcast keep going. And uh, hopefully maybe uh, I'll see you out at one of these events this year and we can just uh, hang out, have a Coke and talk racing. Sounds good. I'll get my sponsors in there too, Jags and Bass Pro. Have a good night, guys. See you, Daryl. Take care.